Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 132. We'll begin with a brief summary of Hosea chapters 1 through 3, the first of the book of 12, with some thoughts about living the allegorical life. If you go back into the Tanakhcast archive, and I strongly encourage that you do, every previous episode is a gem and you listen to episode one, I discuss there how the Tanakh is a strange book for a lot of reasons, including its whimsical forays into allegory and fantasy, as well as, you know, well, let's just listen to the clip from episode one. The Tanakh also includes curious sub-anthologies like the Wisdom Trilogy of Job, Proverbs, and Psalms, or the Five Scrolls, or the Twelve Minor Prophets which for the history-loving Tanakh consumer are really just tangents from the main narrative thrust. So we've reached the first of those curious sub-anthologies, the Book of the Twelve, or as it appears in Aramaic in most Hebrew Bibles, the Tre Asar. And with arriving at this curious sub-anthology, I am confronted with the vexing question about counting. So you're ready to cash out at the supermarket and all the queues are jam-packed with folks with carts so full you would think there was a war on and and then there's the express. It's empty, but the sign says one to eight items only and you have 14 boxes of cereal and seven gallon containers of milk. Do you have two items or 21 items? Do you hit the express or languish in purgatory with the rest of the plebs? Fortunately, The rabbis of the 1st and 2nd century CE have an answer for you. They say the Treasar counts as one book, so you are permitted to queue up in the express. Indeed, there is an extended discussion in the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Bava Batra, folio page 14b and 15a, about this exact point. Quote, The sages taught the order of the books of the prophets when they are attached together is as follows, Joshua and Judges, Samuel and Kings, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and the Twelve Prophets. Consider, Hosea came first, as it is written, quote, The Lord spoke first to Hosea. But did God speak first with Hosea? Weren't there many prophets between Moses and Hosea? And Rabbi Yochanan says he was the first of four prophets who prophesied in that period, and they were Hosea and Isaiah, Amos and Micha, and Hosea should precede them. Since his prophecy is written together with Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, and Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi were the last of the prophets. He is counted with them, but it is written separately, and it comes first. And since it is small, it would be lost. The Treasar clocks in at 1,050 verses, just 223 verses shy of the book of Ezekiel that preceded it, which is the shortest book of the latter prophets. When it first appeared as a single text is unknown, although we do have evidence from a variety of sources. The apocryphal book of Ben Sirah from the 2nd century BCE states, quote, Then too the twelve prophets may their bones flourish with new life where they lie. They gave new strength to Jacob and saved him with steadfast hope. Ben Sirah, though, doesn't indicate who those twelve prophets are. Fast forward to the 1st century BCE, and the discovery of the remains of the Treasar in the fourth cave in Qumran, home of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the subsequent discovery of an even more intact edition of the Treasar in the fifth cave in Wadi Marubaat from the period of Bar Kokhba, that is, 
the second century CE. Twelve is an auspicious number in the Jewish tradition. Yaakov has twelve sons who become the patriarchs of the twelve tribes of Israel. There are twelve judges whose exploits are the subject of the book of Judges. So it's not surprising that a collection of smaller prophetic works would be gathered up into a book of twelve, even though these prophetic works come from some wildly different time periods and whose writings embody wildly different styles. And I could go into the weeds here about the sequence of the books and how, you know, though the third century Palestinian sage Rabbi Yochanan stated that Hoshea came first, it's actually Amos that preceded Hoshea chronologically. It seems that at that time, one couldn't walk down the streets without bumping into a prophet. During the reign of Uziah, king of Judah, and Yeravam, king of Israel in the 8th century BCE, Hoshea, Yeshayahu, Amos, and Micha were out and about and wagging their fingers at people. Take a good look, kids! This is what happens when you're naughty! But since Hoshea's book begins with the quote, the Lord spoke first to Hoshea, who were the rabbis to argue with that batting order? And I could go into some of the thematic through lines between these different works, the recurring theme of the day of God or the lack of any real biographical information about the prophets, but I'll leave that for the individual books. So let's dig in. Hosea. This book throws us back a couple of centuries in history, back before the Babylonian exile, back before the temple was destroyed, back even before the kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians in 722 BCE. Chapter 1, verse 1, quote, The word of the Lord that came to Hoshea, son of Be'eri, in the reigns of King Uziah, Yotam, Ahaz, and Chizkiah of Judah, and in the reign of King Yeravam, son of Yoash, of Israel. We're establishing Hoshea's bona fides, messenger of the word of God, and despite front-loading all the kings of Yehuda, noting that he spent much of his time in the northern kingdom with King Yeravam II, who reigned from 790 to 749 BCE. Chapters 1 through 3, the focus of this episode, consists of the biographical portion of this book and differs so much in style from chapters 4 through 14 that some biblical scholars argue that there are, in fact, two Hoshea's. That there are, in fact, two Hoshea's. Two Hoshea's. Except that we're not going to take that theory seriously. Sorry, guys. Chapter 1 begins with a divine shidduch, a divine match. Quote, When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go get yourself a wife of whoredom and children of whoredom, for the land will stray from following the Lord. Oh, damn! And after being with the wife of whoredom, he fathers not one, not two, but three children of whoredom. And though ostensibly we're talking about a real woman and three real children, this marriage is supposed to be symbolic, representing the tortured relationship between God and the Jewish people, with the names of the kids representing the location of Israel's greatest sinning, Yisrael, and the very catchy names, Lo Ruchama, No Mercy, and Lo Ami, Not My People. I guess that's better than selfie or hashtag, but still. Chapter 2 recounts the turnaround. God promises to restore Israel. It sounds like Hosea is speaking to his unfaithful wife, he warns her to stop stepping out or else it will get much worse for her. But after he, that is Hosea, that is God, I guess, has taught her, that is Israel, a lesson, he will take her back and love her. Love 
Chapter 3 begins with what seems like a reboot of the story, God telling Hosea to befriend a woman of questionable behavior, and then get her some cash and foodstuffs, and tell her that she must first keep it in her pants for a little while before they reconcile. Is this tough love or a symbol of how God will ignore Israel until they want to be with him? Gotta say, I'm not all that sure. And on that perversely heterosexual twisted note, here endeth the lesson. And so the book of 12 begins with the first prophet Hosea called upon to turn his life into a performance. You know, this isn't anything new. We saw Yehezkel withstand a David Blaine level of endurance in the pursuit of prophecy, laying on his side for 390 days, fashioning a mini Jerusalem to reenact the siege, shaving his hair and beard and dividing the pile into three, and then more symbolism and more symbolism. Oh, and I almost forgot the bread baking with poop. But here, Hosea is living the performance. His life itself is the allegory. But he is not performing outlandish feats. His feat is the highest level of banality. He is getting married and having three kids. Doesn't get any more basic than that. Oh, no. Mom's favorite vase. She always says, don't play ball in the house. I'll be grounded. There goes my camping trip. Except Hosea is supposed to marry an Eshet Znunim, a wife of whoredom. Why the text couldn't just say whore is a bit odd. Although if you lived in Samaria at the time of Hosea, you knew exactly what, or more like who, Eshet Znunim, a wife of whoredom, referred to. Because not so long ago, in the collective memory, a wife of whoredom ran the country. Quote, when Yehoram saw Yehu, he asked, Is all well, Yehu? But Yehu replied, How can all be well as long as your mother, Izevel, carries on her countless harlotries and sorceries? And with this wife of whoredom, whom the text names as Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, Hosea is to have three children of whoredom. And I guess... What the text intends here is that Hosea will never really be sure that he is the father of the children. When it comes to one-year-old Khalees, Jose, you are not And as I mentioned before, he used to give the kids highly symbolic names, and it's not the first time that a prophet has been tasked with saddling his kid with a weird name. Ishayahu named his son Maher Shalal Khashbaz. Try to say that ten times fast. So I guess Yisrael, Lo Ruchama, and Lo Ami, like I said before, got off kind of easy. But again, any Sumerian would immediately understand that these names are referring to something. Yisrael, where Ahav and Izevel had a palace and Navot's vineyards grew, and they were so beautiful and lush that it got him murdered by Izevel so she could take them for herself. And as for Lo Ruchama, the girl with no mercy, who is that but Atalia? the daughter of Ahav and Izevel, who was married to Yehoram of Judah to seal a treaty between the kingdoms of the north and the south, and not to wade into the Game of Thrones stuff too deep, but Atalia eventually seizes the throne of Judah and orders the execution of all possible claimants to the throne, including all the children in the extended family. Anakin has turned to the dark side. No mercy indeed. And Loami refers to Ahaziah, also the progeny of Ahav and Izevel, who, after falling from his roof gallery, sent messengers to consult Barzvuv, the god of Ekron, instead of checking a more reliable source, WebMD. What is it, Doc? You have cancer. How could you possibly know that? Oh, I tell everyone they have cancer. 
Why? What seems to be the problem besides the cancer? But here's the thing. God wanted to teach Hosea a lesson about love and fidelity so he would feel God's pain when the Jews go astray and mix dance with other gods. But if this allegory is going to work, it has to go through the full range of emotions and has to begin in one place and let's say a bad place with infidelity. And, and, and I wonder, I have to say, I wonder if it's considered infidelity if the rules of the marriage are set up from the get-go that one spouse has license to sleep around. I mean, Gomer is introduced to us as a wife of whoredom. She is what she is. And, you know, yeah, she's married to Hosea, but we, we kind of expect that she's going to continue her whoring. You know, and this is the classic patriarchy, I guess, so I'm sure Hosea, you know, doesn't approve, but, you know, it's like being angry at a lion for, you know, eating a wildebeest. It just, that's kind of what they do. But this whole experience, the, the life is allegory, it's designed to teach Hosea an important lesson. He has been called upon to minister and lead a nation that perpetually whores after other gods, without understanding the depth of the impact that nation's behavior has on God. Despite the countless iterations of idolatry bad, you know, we've heard it in practically every book of the Tanakh to this point. And we understand that, that yes, one should pledge one's undying fealty and loyalty to God and only God. But it's a very different matter to experience those feelings of betrayal and abandonment yourself. And when you're in for a penny, you're in for the whole cash deposit. So that means a wedding, three pregnancies, two circumcisions, a lot of catering, I mean, we're talking years of living the allegory, kind of like Noah, you know, working on the ark out there, you know, in his driveway, deliberately and publicly. At a certain point, you can't really deny or pretend to not know what's going on. You can't handle the truth. And then there's the verbal and physical violence, the threats, the anger, the contempt. But the full range of emotions also includes joy and happiness. And there's a point in chapter 2 where the tone shifts. The husband, God, Hosea, whichever way you want to work the allegory, he decides to change his attitude toward the relationship. He coaxes his spouse into the wilderness and speaks to her tenderly. And in that day, Hosea tells us, quote, You will call me Ishi, my man, and no more will you call me Baali, my owner, my husband. And then, within three verses, the man, Hosea, God, turns to her and utters a line that Jewish men have declared to their brides under the chuppah for generations. And I will espouse you forever. I will espouse you with righteousness and justice and with goodness and mercy. And for a brief moment, it's wonderful before it all comes crashing down again. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, would it kill you to check out TanakhCast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people who might be interested in some Bible learning find this podcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 133 when we continue in the book of Hosea with chapters 4 through 7.